Hey, Crosstowners, all you have to know right now about this holiday season is give art and come out to Crevasse 22 River House on Sunday, December 11th, and there'll be plenty of art for you to buy to give as presents for Christmas. Schmidt, um, a, a woman of many talents. She is an artist. She's a graphic artist. Um, I, I suspect she can just do all kinds of things because she's managed to corral a whole crew of people who've been trekking all over St. Bernard and doing what's called plein air painting and capturing the glorious natural and other sites of St. Bernard. Um, so I uh, will be showing the work this Sunday, December 11th, and um, it's just gorgeous stuff. It's it's really, you you will be amazed to see what beauty is in St. Bernard. Um, Sabrina, what gave you the idea to do this? Well, during the pandemic, I went outdoors and started painting. I've always, it was something I've always wanted to do and the pandemic created space for that. And just following other painters around the country on social media and painting, and traveling, I'm like, well, let's do this locally. I can invite artists. I know other artists who do this. We can come to St. Bernard and just paint the understated beauty of our parish. And, and put it before people so that they can see the, the true St. Bernard. I mean, I learned recently, and I, I tout this all the time now, that St. Bernard actually has more natural land than anywhere else in the state, than any other parish in the state. And uh, if, if all you ever do is go up and down St. Bernard Highway and Judge Perez Drive, you haven't seen St. Bernard. So I really uh, commend you for doing this. How did you actually get around? Tell me about the navigating. And you know, and it is about getting out and painting scenes that not everybody has an opportunity to see. And maybe through an artist's eyes can capture something, something different and something unique. Right. And how did and, we get around? Yeah, how did you get around? I mean, you know, uh, again, I, I, as I said, you know, there are two main arteries through the parish that most people use. And I don't think most of us know how to get around beyond that. You know, we've been working on this for six months now, well, since June. I've done a lot of days scouting, just touring my parish and taking photos. And it's a lot of scout time before you settle on a scene to, to connect with and paint and capture. And that can happen at any moment. That can happen when the heat is 98 degrees or it's raining outside or there's extreme fog. And it's, that's what's so nice about plein air painting is capturing those moments that just to bring and show people that normally wouldn't recognize it. Tell us about navigating how you got around. So just driving around, driving around St. Bernard and just searching for that, that spot that people don't get to see all the time. So we go off the road, hike in the woods, hike on the Batcher. I did a three mile hike on the Batcher in Poydre. Wow. That was just spectacular. It's like, I go on vacation to have that experience and it's right here at home. It was beautiful. Now, and when you were painting part of the time, 
um, it was probably when the river was low, right? So you were yes. seeing sites that we don't usually see. There's a lot of the rocks. Picture. Yes. You sent me some pictures of the rocks that were pretty wild. I mean, you wouldn't imagine that they were down there and I wouldn't want to have a boat snag on one of them. No, no. <laughs> What's the difference? How would you describe the difference between plain air painting and painting back in the studio? You know, there is a big difference. I tried to paint in a studio recently and it's just, there's not a connection that you have with, the, with a photograph that you do live outdoors experiencing the weather in the environment, experiencing the air, the nature around you, all of that goes into the painting, the feeling of the painting. And you're also there outside painting and you are limited time because the, the light changes so fast. So you're trying to capture what you're seeing in that moment. So it's kind of quick, fast and memory, because that light will change and you have to have it in your memory to get it down on the canvas. So there's a more emotional load in a sense, more of an emotional feeling that comes across in the painting. And it was so interesting when you said you have to capture the moment. So there's a lot of pressure to kind of- There's a lot of pressure. Fast, huh? Yes. So it's that, like when I set up outside and see something that I need to capture, my adrenaline is going and I'm like, I gotta get this. What, what do I, how can I say this as quick as possible? <laughs> you have to capture certain elements and then paint back in around it in order to get that yes. light that's on that special spot. Um, I love the idea. Um, it, it sounds a little too high pressure for my nervous system right now, but um, I'm glad that you did it. And I'm glad you have a whole bunch of work from all those trips with all your people. So how many works do you think you were gonna wind up having on exhibit and for sale this Sunday, the 11th, approximately? So everything will be for sale. We have 14 artists who've participated, anywhere between four and 10 pieces per artist. The work is generally speaking affordable, right? They vary in so, prices, depending on the artists. We, we have a couple of artists who have been at this for many, many, many years. There are two artists who are actually most of our teachers. So yeah, it's varying prices, but some affordable and then some of your more experienced and recognized artists are probably a little bit more expensive. Yeah. Give me a feel. So we're talking about 12 to five. We're talking about Crevasse 22 River House, which is an absolutely exquisite location in the midst of all the uh, oak trees and birds and bayous and river and everything. And, um, and then of course, all your paintings that are showing that as well. So it's just a, an incredible experience from noon to five. We'll have food. So you must feel a terrific sense of accomplishment to get all of this painting done and then you're gonna get it all up on the walls and it's gonna be an amazing show. And whether it rains or not, it doesn't matter because we're gonna be inside. Yeah, it's a big sense of accomplishment, but I have so many more paintings to do. Like going out there and scouting out, I'm always seeing, there's not enough time in a lifetime to do all the paintings. Well, I'm counting on you. I know you're going to keep on doing it. We'll probably have a new batch next year. But this year, we have a pretty big batch of work. And we have a couple other 
artists who are more rare conceptual artists. We have their work too. I think, where do you see it? You're going to love it. Um, it's really interesting uh, new interpretation of, of the work. I believe that the Louisiana landscape is a key inspiration for our whole cultural scene. And I know that you probably share that feeling. Well, Jean, I appreciate you and all the hard work you put into this as well. I've learned so much being my first time doing something like this, curating a show. And I'm looking forward to, to going forward. There's always more to doing these events than anybody realizes until yes. they do. I know. Yes. But it's also fun. I mean, I love the outcome. The outcome makes it all work. Yes. Yes. It's like planning a big party, a celebration. It is. So I'm going to see you Sunday yes. at noon at 8122 um, Sarah Lane. And for everybody who can still hear, you just take St. Bernard Highway all the way down to where you see Guillory's Green Store with great poor boys. And you make a U-turn right there. You make a right turn, go over the railroad track, head down towards the um, levee, and you'll see an open gate. You go in that open gate and you go to, you can't go any further and make a left and you're there. Do come, even if it's raining, it's, it's gonna be indoors and beautiful. All right, I will see you Sabrina on Sunday. Thank you, Jane. See you Sunday. Take care. Bye-bye. I want you to listen to this uh, young man who is doing some really good stuff for folks, and he calls it One Life, One Future, and it's really helping kids take advantage of their life. Let's put it that way. John Green is on a mission to help the young people in a particular neighborhood, which I love that idea of, of really kind of focusing in your efforts. And um, he has an event coming up called A Clause for Celebration. I love that play on words and, um, and a longer term mission as well. So um, John, let's, let's talk about the event first and then let's talk a little bit more about your long-term vision. This particular event is near and dear to me. Um, it's something that um, I was a part of growing up through my mentors. They had a parade um, called Santa Claus Comes to the Hood, uh, where we passed out gifts in the neighborhood that uh, I grew up in. So a bunch of my friends, we went around handing out gifts to them and different families throughout the neighborhood. And um, it's just one of those things that I said I will always get back to doing um, whenever I was able to after my time of playing ball and that kind of stuff. I said I always wanted to go back to my community. And uh, I feel like this uh, particular area is a good place to start because it's very close to where I grew up. It's literally five minutes away. Um, so thankfully we was able to partner with the Housing Authority of New Orleans and uh, Harrison Hampton Law Firm to where we put this thing together where we can kind of spread some holiday chairs to these guys, these kids, the families that's, that live on these housing properties. And uh, we're also gonna go to another property and just drop off gifts as well, so. Let's talk about which properties you're talking about. So um, we're um, December 20th, where we're actually doing the parade style. Uh, we're going to be on the estates uh, housing property and the Florida housing property. That's in the night ward. So and then the following day, we're going to drop off gifts at the Fisher Housing uh, Authority. And these people are all under the umbrella of uh, Hanno, the Housing Authority of New Orleans. How did you happen to pick those two neighborhoods? One of them you said is close to where you grew up. Was that the ninth ward or? Yes, in the night ward. Um, I grew up a little bit over the bridge uh, on St. Claude, off St. Claude. Um, 
around that old Holy Cross historic area. Oh, um, sure. I, I actually had a home there for a while that, that we used for doing art projects. We called okay. it Art House on the Levee. And um, I love that part of the city. It's, it's so underappreciated. Um, really the views from the levee from the river are spectacular and i don't know what's currently happening with the holy cross school site it's had its um issues and it hasn't come together yet but it i hopefully hopefully it will there's no way that it can't because it's too beautiful and important a place i agree and uh like i said that was a big i was big for us growing up um so yeah, I mean, again, the Night Ward in general is just, uh, it's always going to have a soft spot in my heart. Like I said, I grew up down there. It means a lot to me in rebuilding that area. And um, it's good to see some people kind of come back that's, that's want to do good down there. And um, I partnered with a couple of my mentors and a couple of their friends. Uh, and they're still doing activities down there, like the Big Nine Second Line. Uh, that's an organization down there. They have a big second line coming up uh, the Sunday before our actual parade. So we're going to partner with them, just spread a little holiday cheer. What, what's the exact date and time of the two parades? Of the two um, so, so the parade um, that we're doing in the Night Ward on the, uh, on the estates and the Florida uh, housing and properties, we're doing that Tuesday, December 20th. Um, we're going to start around 10 o'clock and we should be wrapping up around one. So it'll be a short parade, but we'll be able to reach each and every child on that on those particular properties. That's so beautiful, yeah. So. And the other event? Uh, the other event is just a gift drop off. Um, we're going to the Fisher uh, housing properties and uh, we're gonna go over there. We're probably gonna have Santa with us and uh, a couple other representatives from our sponsors. We're gonna go over there and kind of help those kids out and drop off gifts and try to put some smiles in their face as well. So I get the feeling that it put a smile on your face at some point. Yeah, it does. That really was what inspired you, huh? Yeah, it does. Um, like I said, I've always been one to always want to give back. Um, it was always a good feeling to see, even with me growing up at 12 years old, helping out and seeing my friend's face that we was giving back to. It just always was a good feeling. So um, I said I always wanted to do that for my city. And I think that Right now, it's a lot of negativity that may be shown a little bit more than a lot of the positive things that's going on around there. Too much. I think really too much. I don't like it when the news shows start off with a murder in Natchitoches or something. I mean, that's that's right. all we can cover. When we have so much going on, we have so much going on in our creative world, our cultural programming, our educational system. And, um, and, and, and actually, quite frankly, even though we all complain about it, there is a lot of infrastructure work happening everywhere. And um, yeah, I, I, don't know, I don't know what that's all about. There's some kind of a sour mood that is pervading. And it's not just here. That's the thing everybody in New Orleans always forget. We're not the only one. Well, correct, it's, correct. It's it's all over the, not only all over the country, but all over the world. It's a very right. challenging time. I agree. I agree. And like I said, I just want, like I said, these things that we're doing is just trying to bring a little bit positive change to it. Uh, let these kids know that somebody's out there thinking about them, Karen. Um, we also gave away uh, 200 backpacks and school supplies to kids uh, early in August um, just to kind of help these parents out because I know times get tough. Um, everything is expensive right now. The economy is a little inflated a little bit. So we're just trying to do what we can in these neighborhoods and provide for these families as much as possible, you know, make everything as easy as possible and let these kids know that somebody cares, somebody's thinking about them. And I know it's plenty of positive things that's going on in the city. We just need to bring more light to it. 
Exactly. And uh, that's what you're doing by doing the events that you're doing. I understand. I see where you're going. Now, tell me what your long-term uh, relationship is with your organization and what the name of your organization is and what you're trying to do in the, in the more um, overarching and, and long-term way. Yeah, so um, the name of the organization itself is One Life, One Future. Um, our tagline is define your own opportunities. Um, I think that at times, uh, I know growing up that we may be, uh, we may become a product of circumstance um, to where, you know, maybe we get down on ourselves a little bit, but we're just trying to be there, be a presence in the neighborhoods and let them know that um, it's always a way that you can find your way out of the, any kind of rough situation. You just kind of got to work through it, focus in on it. And um, overall, we want to create a mentorship program to where we can help these kids possibly starting out through middle school and get them through high school, uh, get them to graduate, and also get them to at least the first step of young adulthood at the high school, you know, whether that's directing them to the military, through connections, uh, sports, college, trade school, whatever we need to to get them culture. to culture, you know. Um, so, and I think that um, it's, it should be a big focus on that in our neighborhoods. I, again, I know that we always want to do events, but these kids need a long-term help. Um, just not somebody that pop in and out of neighborhoods, hand out a few gifts, that kind of stuff, but somebody that's going to have a presence down there and actually cares and want to see them make it through that first step of young adulthood. Because I mean, again, it's a negative uh, connotation sometimes when it comes to kids making it out of certain uh, impoverished neighborhoods and getting to that first young step of adulthood. So we're going to help them as much as possible. And we're going to teach them things like financial leadership, financial literacy, um, we have a program teaching them how to balance checkbooks, file taxes, start businesses. Um, and even if it's sports, you know, like I said, I play sports. So it's always an avenue there. I know plenty of people that, that are carpenters, uh, real estate agents, that kind of stuff. So we can, we have a, a wide, vast variety of people that can help out these young kids and get them in the right direction. Um, so that's the long-term goal for us. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, when you when you talk to people about how they sh their lives shaped, there's always somebody, whether it was a teacher, a neighbor, a relative or their own parents who mentored them and and who they remember. I had a high school uh, history teacher who um, realized that I had an interest in that. And uh, he advised me on applying for a specific program at, at Cornell. I, I, I grew up in the South Bronx, and he um, he told me about a program at Cornell that was was a land grant school, and land grant schools have no tuition, and so I was able to go there because I couldn't have afforded to go there otherwise. And um, I mean, he he made all the difference in my life. I mean, being able to go to, you know, uh, a school like, like Cornell, it was the industrial and labor relations school. And that really shaped who I am in terms of being concerned with jobs and careers and workforce and economic development. So, um, yeah, he was he was my uh, key mentor. Who, who in your life was was special for you? Um. Just to pick out a couple, I had a lot of people that was there to mentor me. Um, I grew up in a household where it was just me, my mom, and my five older sisters. So, you know, it was oh my a goodness. single parent household. Like I said she did what she can, but um, 
one you of my a lot of gals uh, oh uh, yeah really doting on you too correct <laughs> correct so one of my mentors that uh that got me involved with this actually his name is Lionel Youngblood um him and his brother uh Dr. Youngblood um he's a pastor up there in New York actually so um they took me under their wing, um, got me out the house, got me involved with sports, taught me uh, different life lessons. Um, they made me work at the barbershop, sweep up the barbershop on the weekends just to kind of keep me in line, make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And they just those talks that they have with you in the car ride, whether they come and get you, bringing you home, going to some kind of football practice, basketball practice. It's those talks that, you know, they give you those those gems and those life lessons that kind of changed my trajectory. Cause I mean, like I said, and I, the, honestly, the neighborhood helped me out as well. The older guys in the neighborhood. Um, and even though some of them may not have been doing the greatest things, but they kept all the younger guys in the neighborhood on the, on the right path. And, um, Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's a lot of, they might've been involved in, let's say, I don't know, you know, drug trade, gangs, mm -hmm. whatever, but they were kind of looking out for the younger folks, trying to steer them in the right direction. Is that what you're most, saying? Most definitely. Like I said, they will have, you know, have little football games in the neighborhood, little basketball games. They'll buy something to eat, a couple of snacks here and there, just to kind of make sure that we was on the right path. And like I said, I mean, we understood that, you know, circumstances, sometimes they may not go the greatest, but they took care of us as well as, uh, as well as other mentors. I mean, that's so interesting. Would you say that that is a common phenomena in various um, neighborhoods that are challenged with income levels and so forth? I think that um, when I was growing up, it was, it was very common. I think now um, it has changed a little bit, but I think it's starting to come back, honestly. Um, I think that we need to have more representation in these neighborhoods. Uh, just speaking with some of the older guys that may be around there, just letting them know what we're doing, uh, what we're trying to do, you know, help. So you see more engagement of the mm -hmm. uh, older kids in, a, in the neighborhood? Correct. Yes, that's all it is. It's about, it's about the engagement with them and letting them know that somebody's supporting them as well. And I think, you know, um, I have a sort of obsession with the, the issue of whether our youth are getting um, education and training in the practices that are now common in our economy, the tech work, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if, if they're not getting that and they don't see their opportunities, that's when they fall off the train, mm -hmm. is when they don't have the hope and anticipation of a future. And so I'm not sure we're doing the best job preparing them for this kind of high-tech environment that we're in now? Well, honestly, I think that a lot of kids are tech savvy. Um, they're more tech savvy than we probably think. We just need to have to, we have to shift the focus of what they're actually doing with their tech abilities. Um, that's like very, I said, that's very interesting, them, yeah. Um, if we can keep them solely off of social media sites, but actually teaching them how to code programs, um, how to edit websites, how to create a website, build a website. If we direct the focus differently, I think that we can we can do a lot with in the community. Like I said, I, these kids are, are very smart. To be honest with you, they, may they be are. Yeah, coming up, they may be they're way more advanced and they understand technology way more than we did. We had to learn it, but now they're being born into us. I mean, I think that we help the focus of it and shift the focus of it. We, we can could turn probably we could probably have a program where they tutor us dinosaurs as we 
we have to call ourselves somewhere. Right. <laughs> how to how to do things in tech, you know? Mm -hmm. That that's such an interesting idea. Would that I had another life and I could <laughs> tackle that idea. But I, I really think it's true. They you have to in many families, I think it's a it's a regular thing that the kids are having to show the parents how to do things. Mm -hmm. Um on the computers that the the uh, older folks don't know how to do. And I'm not that old that my nephew still show me stuff how to do on the phone and on the laptop and stuff. So I mean, it like I said, as long as we're constantly trying to learn across the generations, we still we have a chance to kind of get ahead of this thing. So what part of the city do you live in now? Uh, right now, I currently live in the, uh, the River Ridge area. It's 10 minutes from everything, so it's very centralized for me personally. Um, but I still have a family that stay in the Lord Night Ward. I have family that stay in New Orleans East. I have family that stay uptown. So they're, they're a little bit spread out everywhere. So. The city, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I um, am not one of those people who's sour about the city. I, I do think it's kind of frustrating to try to get things done here sometimes mm -hmm. because there is so much negativity, I think is the word you hear the most. <laughs> So <clears throat> to have somebody like you out there is so inspiring. And I, I wind up interviewing folks like you a lot mm. on my show because I really do try to shine a light on folks who are trying to make good things happen. So I'm very appreciative of what you're doing and I respect what you're trying to do. So why don't you tell people, um, give them the information again on these events, but tell them also where your website is and I hope you have some kind of a year-end giving program where they can um, maybe uh, aim some donations your way. So um, tell me if somebody wanted to support your organization, how can they do it? Yeah, so right now um, you can go visit our website, onelifeonefuture.com. Um, you spell out everything. So as you spell out the numbers and everything. Um, but um, if you're looking for us, that's where you can find us. As far as the donation, um, everything is up there. The donation link is on there. The volunteer link is on there. We have gift wrapping events coming up December 17th. Um, we have a sponsorship for anybody that wants to become a sponsor that's still available. And we have a sponsorship network party um, that's gonna take place December 15th. Um, that information will be uploaded on our website. Um, so we're directing everybody to go there um, and just everybody that may want to donate that may not have uh, a big amount that they are affordable to a small donation is, is very welcome a uh, $15 donation takes care of one kid's toy so that may take care of one smile so that's what we're kind of urging people to do um, also we will be uh, posting tomorrow our drop locations for toys just in case somebody has toys they want to drop off We'll be posting that on the social media site, uh, Instagram. It is the One Life, One Future as well, where people can kind of, um, they can visit there for more information um, and to stay updated with us. And uh, yes, so we may have a year-end wrap-up thing if they want to constantly support us. Uh, we definitely would, would take any support possible. Um, so... That's pretty much it. What we have going on right now, uh, like I said, time is ticking with that, but everything is moving in the right direction. A lot of things is moving faster than we expected and it's moving in the right direction. So we got a lot of stuff that we need to get together and um, but everything is going to be great that day and hopefully it gets the, the right attention that it needs. Hey, John, you know what I didn't ask you? What do you actually do for a living? Do you run this organization or you have a job? I have, yes, so yes, I do run this organization along with a, a great team that we have. 
Uh, I also have an investment company. It's called JLG Future Investments. Uh, where we're JLG. Yes, Future Investment, investment Company. Yes, um, okay. well, we're focusing on joint ventureships to help new entrepreneurs uh, build up their brand. Um, but that's the big focus for me right now. Um, like I said, hopefully at some point I could kind of hand this thing off to someone that's, <laughs> that's willing to put in some work um, and we partner with them down the line. But right now I'm putting in as much sweat equity as I need to to get this thing up off the ground and make sure that we continue to do what's right in the neighborhoods. There are so many folks like you out there doing the kind of thing you're doing, and we just don't uh, shine enough light on you. So you got some light on you right now. <laughs> and, Thank uh, you. We'll have you on our show Friday at noon okay. um, on uh, called Crosstown Conversations on WBOK. And um, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Anything we can do to help you guys as well, just let us know. I appreciate that. That's uh, nice of you to uh, think of us too. All right. All right. So we're the Creative Alliance of New Orleans is my nonprofit, but the radio okay. show I just do on my own, uh, again, just to support other folks like you who are trying to help out and make things happen. Okay, well, you definitely keep in touch. You're more than welcome to come to the sponsorship mixer. Um, and we can meet a ton of people that's going to be involved with this program as well. We can shine a light on you there as well. Thank you. I'd love to come. I have a, some health issues going on in my family right now, so I'm not sure I'll make it, but um, I'll track what you're doing. And you feel free to call me anytime you've got something new to put out there. I'm happy to help. I definitely uh, you have. You. A, and you have a great holiday season, too. I hope you get some yes, wonderful <laughs> toy from somebody. So oh, it's, it's, it's already great. So we people have been great to us thus far, so we're thankful. Okay. All right. Well, Good luck to you. I hope it's a, the events are both great and I hope the kids really enjoy them and appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. John Barnes is such an interesting person and artist. I think we're going to have to split his interview up and and because I just had to keep going with him he was so interesting so half today and half next week John Barnes is one of the most favorite of the artists that I know and um, I really uh, he's just one of my favorite artists period and um, he brought a piece to be included in the show that we're opening on Sunday, December 11th from 12 to five at Crevasse 22 River House at 8201, I think it is Sarah Lane. You might wanna check that online. I, I'm bad with addresses. And um, he brought in a piece for this show, which is basically, about landscapes. Uh, a lot of our shows are about landscapes in different ways. This one is mainly plain air. That's where people actually go out in nature and paint what they're seeing rather than from a photograph in their studio. And it makes for a much more vibrant and, um, and actually I learned something from Sabrina Schmidt, who's the curator of the plain air show, that um, they have to work very fast to capture the light before it changes. I never mm -hmm. thought of that but that's a very important issue for them. So it puts a little 
you know, energy and crisis into their work. Um, but John did a piece, I, I invited um, a, a small number of artists to do more conceptual works that relate to landscape. And um, he did a piece, I was looking at it from a distance, trying to figure out what it was about. And then I got closer and closer and looked on the, of the flat piece underneath the sculptural piece that rises up into the air. And I said, oh my goodness, that is one of the more interesting works I have seen. So now that I have teased everybody listening because they, you know, we can't see the piece right now, I might be able to work a way in to do that. I'll talk to my editor, but um, John, tell me about the work that you submitted for our landscape related show that is opening this Sunday. And everything in this, in this show is, is, is for sale. So people can actually purchase any of the works from the small plain air paintings. They're relatively small and they're not teeny um, or the sculptures and the, and the more conceptual work. So um, it, it, tell me about it. Cause uh, it, it really floored me. It's just really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> well, that, that piece is entitled Nub, you know, and uh, sort of as a play sort of playing around with the expression of working work working my hands down to the nub you know wow. working my fingers to the bone you know that type of uh blue collar colloquialism uh and applied it to a slave slavery situation you know so uh uh you know a large part of that particular body of work that was called uh ingrained habits and uh what's what I think is one of the more unique features of that piece, aside from the arm that's reaching out and descending, like, you know, the arm of a someone who's going to have to work in the fields, kind of oh, a very well-developed arm. And uh, <clears throat> I initiated this sequence of filling in the negative space of the wood grain of the uh, 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 plywood. And I was filling it in with 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 a narrative, you know, the, the historical narrative dealing with uh, the 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 uh, experience of slavery, and uh, just it kind of just took on a its own life of its own as I went through uh, layer after layer of uh, of wood grain. So it was like if you don't know what I mean by the negative space, you have the darker wood grain, which is the positive, and then you have the uh, the lighter grain between it. You know, I'm sure people may call it something else. I just call it the negative wood grain. So I fill that up because that's the whiter wood and it gives better contrast with the drawing. So I started off with a slave ship in, in the uh, left hand corner of the landscape, you know, of the horizon. So I formed a horizon line showing, you know, the, the progression of more slave ships and slaves being offloaded and being, you know, herded with cattle and then, you know, uh, as each different uh, layer descended towards the bottom of the composition, you know, the, the history got more and more recent. And so there's figures of, of, of males lifting these large bushels of some unknown crop and hacking it down with uh, machetes, you know, I'm thinking sugarcane, cotton, you know, uh, type of, of things that would have been active in Louisiana, because Louisiana is a big sugar producer. And sugar sugarcane slavery was uh, some of the most uh, physically demanding and uh, brutal 
experiences, you know, because they're hacking thick reeds of sugarcane with machetes all day, feet ankle deep in water. So they have boils and all sorts of problems they just had to work through, you know. Uh, and and so these 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 men tended to be very uh very physically large, big, like a football team. And uh and you know I kind of made a comparison to uh having a, a whole bunch of slaves is you know the status that the slaveholder had in those days is similar to like you know a college football coach you know of a big you know uh, you know uh, you know big school you know large high profile school so anyway as it keeps going you start seeing some of the things that other things that came out of it you, there's a row of these little square shapes of sugar cubes, you know, there's different livestock, there's uh, beans, there's uh, uh, liquid liquors, you know, things of that nature. Uh, uh, and, and then, you know, there's, then it descends into scenes that kind of could imply the Civil War, where it shows the actual soldiers killing each other. And then it then it has these other scenes of bondage happening around it, and it just keeps going and going and going all the way to uh, unemployment and prison. Contemporary uh, versions of it, and so the arm that's descending out. So it's like the area above the horizon, that wood grain. I'm using that. My intention for that is that it appear like a cloud field, right? And so that's like an arm reaching reaching from the heavens you know into this reality and this reality is so abrasive you know it it, it, it literally even for for that cre large creator force has worked its its hands down to the bone you know it's worked its hands to the nub just trying to bring correction and uh resolution to issues in this plane of existence the physical plane so you know i i play around with a lot of metaphysical concepts with my work um, in terms of materials, uh, the arm is a piece of cedar, you know, American cedar. It's not aromatic. And uh, it's interesting because before I got it, it was termite affected. So after I retrieved the piece of wood, I cleaned out the spongy uh, termite pulp that was left behind. And some of it actually, you know, uh, 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 petrified, it, you know, became like a cement, you know. You know, so some of that yellowish material on there, uh, on that arm, is actually a sort of petrified termite uh, refuse that, uh, you know, I guess it happens when, if the log was wet, you know, at some point, you know, because normally that's the conditions that makes the termite attracted to the wood is the wood is wet because it's softer. So these conditions will create this sort of petrified pulpy form. So anyway, that's that's part of the texture of the arm and uh it's you, you know as i mentioned you know that was the uh, idea behind it <clears throat> and the screws are kind of just you know uh something that i use to separate you know the 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 arm from the uh background you know it's almost like a barrier you know it implies reaching through a barrier Phew, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's pretty intense stuff. What what people uh, who haven't seen the piece can't imagine is these are these are very diminutive. Um, is it incisions in the wood? It's incisions in the wood, right? 
No, no, it's, it's ink. It's ink. Oh, it's, it's ink. Drawing. Okay, yeah. so it's yeah. drawings on the wood, but they're they're they're. Um, I don't know. To me, it sort of has a flavor, even though it's smaller than the hieroglyphs of the of the ancient Egyptian writing. But it it, it kind of has uh, a sense of you know the history that those um, hieroglyphs were telling. Uh, all those drawings on the on the walls of tombs, um, and I I sense that kind of um, approach in your work. You work in wood a lot with very very different products, from kind of abstract constructivist pieces to um, you've done some amazing portraits, heads. Um, and, and now this completely different from anything else you've done. And, you know, I want you to know that I really, really respect artists who aren't afraid to change their approach. My husband is like that. He does very, very different things. It makes it a little bit harder to market your work because there is a tendency on a part of buyers to want to collect something that's recognizable about an artist right and so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot of different things that's not so recognizable it, it's it's harder for you to build the brand in the market and so i admire that i think that that's really important i hate these artists that just do the same thing over and over and over again the same metal bunnies or um or um uh, portraits that all look alike and so forth um, they're, but very they, <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> they're very smart. They're very smart. Well, they're um, uh, there's a different kind of word for that. There's it's not so much smart as um, kind of opportunistic, is what I would say. So, but I, I admire that approach of of really um, evolving your work. And, um, but at the same time you work with wood. So I have two questions. One, tell me about working with wood and why that became such an important medium for you. And then secondly, why it's important for you to move your approach to how you use the wood. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I've always been attracted to um, things made from wood and, you know, and just, uh, I started off illustrating as a kid, and uh, I remember the first time I really felt like I had a successful drawing. I was uh, in the seventh grade in an art class, and there was this drawing. It was like a deer skull with uh, a piece of, of driftwood, and you know, it, it, it was a big struggle. But once I got the effect I wanted, I was like, "Wow, you know, what is it about the?" The, the wood that I like, oh, okay, it's the wood grain. So, you know, it just kind of grew out of that. So when I went to grad school, I went to Memphis College of Art. I went to undergrad at Southern University in Baton Rouge. And um, I did a range of different things. But uh, when I went to the school in Memphis, you know, there's a lot of woodworking happening at that school. And so um, you know, it's easy to get carried away with, 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 with things there. And so the bulk of my training was in wood, although they had metals, jewelry making, stuff like that. I just drew more to that. And um, so, you know, that's, that's what uh, my most uh, developed skill set is. And it's, uh, you know, it's at a point where I think I'm, I'm able to communicate ideas uh, very effectively in wood. So, you know, I, I, I like it. 
Well, um, other people like it too, <laughs> I would have to say, because um, you really do, as I said, uh, different and original and interesting things uh, with, well, with the wood. But I, but I would say this, you know, uh, I would say this in terms of, you know, the diversity of, of forms, some, some works that, that people see are commissioned works you know, their commission work. So I, I will work with clients, you know, who have a certain thing that they want. And, um, you know, I, I don't really necessarily look at that as my work per se, you know, but it's kind of like I lend my creativity to uh, help them tell a story visually. You know well, what I mean? Collaboration. Um, I don't, yeah. What's that? It's a collaboration. It's a collaboration. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but, you know, the, you know, it's not it's not masterminded by me, you know, it's not masterminded. So that makes it a different type of uh, of, of expression. But, uh, you know, the core elements are in my and pretty much all of my work, you know, but I know what you mean like, in terms of like most people hadn't seen any any work of mine. It has illustrations and stuff like that. But I just sometimes I'll, I'll get carried away with idea and in a process of experimenting with it. I'll be invited to 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 be in a solo show. So uh, I mean I'm, I'm in a, in a group show, and so in the process of that, this is my dog back here. In, in the process of uh, oh, okay, in the process of I had my uh, dog. You know, I was looking to show you, but he 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 skipped out. Um, hey Max, Max. Anyway. But yeah, in the process of being in the group shows, you know, a lot of that work is experimental. So uh, but but. You know, most of my work deals with dwellings and, you know, uh, different different archetypes of uh, historical archetypes, figures and shapes, you know, uh, but it's always cavities and crevices and, you know, spaces inside of spaces with most of the work now. Uh, but but yeah, uh, in terms of the that particular grouping of pieces, uh, so there's others in that edition there's a, a piece called deliverance it too features an outstretched arm except this one has a hand on it and it's kind of like uh it too has a horizon and tells a story of uh the slavery situation up till now and you know it, it shows how technology was introduced to sort of uh reduce the uh the the the, the usefulness of the slave uh, you know, it, it it goes all the way from there into uh, you know, uh, pre uh, it goes all the way into the 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 New Orleans uh and and its relationship to the river. It's it's a lot in there. It's it's like you know, it's a very complex uh rendering. Uh, and it's kind of a train of thought too. You know, it was it was like I was really getting lost in those while doing them, but they they were very much an experiment. I think you know, that's something. Uh, I think that's something a lot of people wonder about, the extent to which an artwork is preconceived and then executed versus evolves as it's happening. And I think both happen, you know, it depends on the artists and the work. Um, but um, I think possibly, and I, I, this would be a prejudice on my part, the more interesting works are the ones that evolve in process. I agree, yeah. Well, it depends. It depends. Uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, sometimes that in, that intended idea is so strong that uh, you, you know it it might 
it might be so strong and so incredible of an idea you might not have a capacity to do it at the time you know the idea manifests so you write it down draw a few pictures and eventually you'll be in a position to make the work and it'll be even stronger because you know you, there's been some frustration in, in the build up of not being able to actually physically make it like i had a, a big piece like that um that really uh you, you know it was a process you know I, I had a studio when i came up with the idea i was doing a joan mitchell residency towards the end so two weeks later i didn't have a studio for another like six months so i couldn't even really get a good start on it you know but i had the idea and every time i would you know think about it i would write the ideas down and so by the time i got to really work with the piece it was you know it it, it became a train of thought because there had been so much forethought invested that you know it it, it kind of became part of the subconscious background noise you know you know um i don't know whether it's because of black lives matter movement and this kind of hyper awareness that we are experiencing right now about the history of um african americans black Americans, uh, former slaves in America, there's a lot of different ways to characterize a people. Um, but slavery has certainly become a more um, present uh, focus than it has been for a long time. Uh, it's always been there and it's always been in the minds of black people but it is, it is being experienced at another level by everybody else. My question is, there are lots of other groups of people who have gone through phases of history that involved slavery. I mean, I, my background is, is, is uh, uh, part Jewish and part uh, Catholic. I was raised Catholic, but my father was Jewish. Both of those people were slaves at one point in history, but not recently. Is the focus on slavery in the black community because it was so much more recent uh, than let's say it is for Jews and Catholics alike. I mean, Catholics were also slaves um, at one point in history. So is the level of, what, explain to me the level of awareness that we're experiencing right now. Well, you know, I, I think you were right to say it's never went away in the black community, but, uh, you know, yeah, it was a very recent event. And um, I mean, you know, if, uh, cities that are very old, you know, have only had free blacks for they've had free blacks for a, a shorter period of time than they've had enslaved blacks. You know what I mean? So there's a culture that's uh, developed throughout the whole slavery uh, dynamic, a culture, you know, that is still quite active and nefarious, you know, it takes place in so many forms. So it's kind of like, it hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't gone anywhere. So, uh, you know, then you see the effects of, of a late start, you know, as you look at all the, at, at many other groups, uh, ethnically, you know, they, 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 you know, they came here voluntarily, you know, voluntarily seeking uh, a better life, 
So there's a, a, a certain motivation that comes with that. And uh, that's an admirable thing, but, you know, to, you know, be basically the product of, a, of, 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 you know, the spoils of war for somebody, you, you know, it's like, uh, like I'm saying, you, you, you see the power dynamic and, and the amount of time that, uh, you know, our community is held power or held presence in uh, politics and government and, and, and in the media has been fairly recent. You know, so it's 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 a you know it's it's a late start in some in some instances. Everybody didn't recover from that experience the same. Some of us recovered very well and have uh you know evidence with several generations of successful people, and then you have some who are still in a, a different level of recovery. You know, because uh, people have to. It takes a, you know, you just don't stop a process like that and eject the people into an already existing competitive zone where they have absolutely no tools to start with and expect several generations later, you know, for, for that power dynamic to just organically shift when, you know, the other groups have had uh, many more generations of presence, power, and invisibility. So I mean that's that's the that's a long drawn out answer, but you know oh, that's um, that's that's part of the problem. You know, part of the problem is it's like uh, you know, you know, there there has to be a mechanism in place to uh, you know, help advance those whose uh, post slavery recovery generations later has stagnated, and it could be a, a variety I, of reasons. I would have to say in my mind, and tell me I'm wrong, that 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 tool is education. And we're we've been failing to um, provide the uh, ramp up through education because we haven't been um, keeping pace with the economy in our education programs. For anybody, but particularly for people who are still climbing out of slavery, and I and I think also it's remark we have to um, to remind uh, the listener that of course, as they know, uh, there are people who are still fighting um, uh, acknowledgement of that history and its presence. Are the people who, for example, are trying to ban books in schools. John Barnes is such an interesting person and artist. I think we're going to have to split his interview up and, and because I just had to keep going with him. He was so interesting. So half today and half next week. So as I said, it's all about him art. And if you come down to Cravas 22 River House in Poitras, just go down St. Bernard Highway until you see Guillory's. Uh, poor boy shop, make a, a right turn and a kind of a sharp, almost U-turn and come down the road towards the, towards the levee and you'll see the gate to Crevasse 22 River House. Um, look forward to seeing you there.